following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Anybody merry out there? Okay, there's some Merry Christmas people. All right. Um, Let's start this morning by reading from uh, Matthew chapter 1 and the uh, candle Advent reading we heard from Luke. But let's hear again uh, the Christmas story from Matthew's perspective. And we'll be reading from verse 18 to 23, I believe. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being being a just man and uh, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, uh, my title for this uh, last Sunday, and this is Christmas Miracles, and certainly around the Christmas story run, Jesus' birth, we see a lot of uh, miraculous things happening. And last week we looked at the miracle of Revelation, the angels, and all the different ways that God um, spoke to the characters in the story and revealed himself and his plan, as we saw here with the angel showing up to, to speak to Joseph. Uh, this morning I'm going to talk about a little different miracle. I want to talk about the miracle of the incarnation. And uh, it's a really big word that um, I'll explain later what it means. But before we get there, let me just uh, back up a little bit and uh, start with a bit of an illustration uh, suppose you were to take somebody who uh, had spent their whole life in, um, in some uh, tribal village in, in a remote part of Africa on some great you know, African plain where they had never in their whole life seen a mountain or the ocean. Right? And so you conduct this experiment and you pull them out of their little tribal village and you take them to view two great uh, geographical features, one the Pacific Ocean and one the Himalayan mountain range. As you take them out of the middle of the Pacific and you plop them down in a boat right in the middle of the Pacific where they're surrounded, as far as they can see in every direction, by just ocean, right? And you say, you know, what do you see? What, is, what, what, what do you think about this? And of course, they'd be pretty awed, I'm sure, seeing just this huge amount of water that they couldn't even imagine before. I mean, think like gods must be crazy if you've seen that movie. Um, Huge, vast body of water, right? But then you take them and you extract them from the boat and you fly them up and you put them on top of Mount Everest, right? And they survey the Himalayan mountain range from the top of the world, from Mount Everest. And they see all these mountains and the glaciers and just mind-boggling heights, right? And then you ask them, okay, which is more spectacular? Which do you think is bigger and greater? What do you think they would answer? 
Well, I don't know, but I would guess, uh, if it was me, uh, uh, the mountains. Um, because when, the, the reality is, when you're in the middle of the Pacific, you don't really see much, right? And granted, you, you see uh, for a long distance, but what you see to the horizon is, is just a small fraction of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but when you're standing on top of Mount Everest, what you would see really is quite spectacular. Craggy, jagged mountain peaks towering up. And if you were on top of Everest and just looking below you, it seemed like an infinite distance to the bottom. And uh, I've, I've never been on Everest, but I've been on other mountains. And it can be kind of a terrifying feeling if you're kind of squeamish with heights. And there's glaciers and roaring rivers and snow. And, it, um, and I think that they would probably say the mountains. Now, some of you are ocean lovers, and you're going you're gonna to argue. Ken will be back there going, no, no, the ocean. The reality is a lot of what we feel is spectacular about the ocean is not the middle of the Pacific, but the beach and the coastline, right? It's the land features that give it variety that break it up. But if you're actually out in the middle of the ocean, there's this featureless landscape of nothing, right? But the reality is if we're talking about what's actually greater, the truth and the facts are the Pacific Ocean is vastly greater than even the Himalayan mountain range. Uh, here's, the, here's the difference. The whole Himalayan, not just the... Mount Everest in that part, but the whole Himalayan mountain range is about one million square mi- square kilometers. Uh, so granted, big chunk of real estate, a million square kilometers. But guess how big the Pacific Ocean is? 161 million square kilometers. Uh, the Pacific is 160 times bigger than the Himalayan mountain range. <clears throat> and not only that, and this just this pains me as a mountain climber and somebody who loves mountains. Um, <clears throat> Mount Everest is indeed the highest point on planet Earth, but it is, believe it or not, not the biggest mountain. Right? What is the biggest mountain? Anybody know? Mauna Kea in Hawaii is actually 33,000 feet tall. 5,000, almost well, 4 plus thousand feet taller than Mount Everest. The difference is most of it is submerged under the, underwater, right? But it's actually a taller mountain. So in many ways, and we could talk about if you were to plunge under the depths of the ocean, if you were to begin exploring the Pacific Ocean, you would find it to be extraordinarily spectacular. Um, but the problem is two things. One, uh, we just can't wrap our minds around the size of it. <clears throat> and one of the ironies of life and the ironies about what's spectacular to us is that in order for something to be truly spectacular in our minds, it has to be small enough for us to see, Right? What makes Mount Everest so spectacular is not that it's so big, but actually that it's so small. It's small enough we can view it all at once in one time uh, with one gaze of our eye. Whereas the Pacific is so big that even from an airplane, and many of us have flown across the Pacific, and we know that even from 40,000 feet, you can't begin to see it all. And so its size actually makes it kind of hard to grasp and hard to understand. And it actually makes it not very spectacular because it is exactly so big. Well, I used that illustration to talk this morning a little bit about the miracles of Christmas. Uh, Because uh, the miracles that oftentimes we think of as most spectacular are spectacular and impressionable to us precisely because they are not big, but because they're small. Now, some would say, well, anything miraculous would be impressive, right? And in some extent, that's true. Um, for, and, and for the uh, account of the Christmas story, 
Um, when Joseph uh, has this angelic vision and this angel shows up and says, hey, by the way, Mary's not pregnant because she was with another man, but by the Holy Spirit, um, it was an impressive thing. And that, in that sense, any miracle that happens to me, I'm going to be uh, probably impressed with. Um, of course, the virgin birth, the fact that Mary conceived a child uh, without ever sleeping and having sexual intercourse with a guy. That she just woke up one morning and she was just pregnant and she was kind of worried by that. And the angel shows up and said, this is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Certainly that is a, an impressive miracle. <clears throat> In fact, so impressive that uh, some people have denied that it's even possible. And they've said, no, it's impossible that she could have just miraculously bego- uh, become pregnant. But of course, if we believe that there's a God who created the whole universe, who simply spoke it into being, uh, taking uh, the Virgin Mary and uh, creating her a living embryo, actually it's not all that hard for a God who spoke everything into existence and who gives life to everything. Um, but it is nonetheless a spectacular miracle. Um, <clears throat> probably the most spectacular of all in the, the Christmas accounts uh, was the angels showing up to the shepherds. And this has dramatic effect. Like if you're into theatrics, this has theatric effect, right? Because it happens at night out in the the hillsides with the sheep and it's dark. And these angels show up and who are known for their brilliance and their light. So it's kind of like this ongoing fireworks show, right? It's we like fireworks, right? Because it's it's spectacular. And so here's these angels. And and then pretty soon there's a whole choir of angels. and, And added to the brilliant light show is their thundering voice breaking the silence of the night with uh, this announcement that, that Jesus is born to the shepherds. Those are all spectacular, but they're spectacular in our minds precisely because they're small enough for us to wrap our minds around. All right? Um, but I don't want to talk about any of those. I want to talk instead about something that's a much greater uh, miracle, and it's a miracle on the scale of the Pacific Ocean. And because of that, it's a miracle that oftentimes gets lost <coughs> and actually is uh, remarkably unspectacular and that is the miracle of the incarnation and you're all going oh yeah the, uh, uh. okay how about those angels <laughs> right? the miracle of the incarnation what exactly is the incarnation <clears throat> and why is it we call about it as a miracle and, and why is it <clears throat> even important um, <clears throat> I do believe it is a, a miracle that uh, is worth considering and it is cons- worth considering because it is Uh, stunningly enormous. Uh, But it is like the the Pacific Ocean, mostly hidden beneath the depths that are difficult for us to plunge into to see. A lot of the mystery of the Incarnation is is, uh, mind-boggling to us and and mostly out of reach to us. And I don't hope this morning to explain all of what it is, but I want to at least think about it a little bit. And uh, the first uh, question we need to uh, answer is really what makes the incarnation miraculous. And by the way, the incarnation, I'll define more in a minute, but it's this idea that God became man, right? That when Jesus was born, he wasn't just a human being, but actually that he was God, uh, uniquely God, the creator of the universe. And that somehow God came in and took on a human form and life and took on human flesh and blood. And we call that uniting together of God's nature and human nature, the incarnation so first of all, what makes that miraculous? Well, if you remember, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about a miracle being um, 
something that uh, when, when God intervenes in nature, right? God exists outside of nature. And when he comes and when God starts messing with things in nature, when he starts changing the natural order of events, it's miraculous. So uh, G, uh, Mary's conception, Mary becoming pregnant was miraculous because it didn't happen naturally. Now, her pregnancy was a natural event, but it occurred because God intervened and gave to her uh, a child and a life inside her womb. Uh, well, the incarnation is miraculous, and, and the Bible says that, uh, as we read, that, uh, that, that Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. But more than that, it says uh, that all this was done, we read in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, when, Jesus, when Jesus was born, in a very real and unique way, uh, Joseph and Mary could say, God has showed up. God is now with us in a way that he wasn't before. Now, what's confusing about this is people would say, well, isn't God a spirit? Isn't God like everywhere present? What do you mean that God is all of a sudden now with us? Wasn't he with us before? Well, it's true. God is spirit. And he's everywhere present. And he is like the, like a spirit wind that blows through all of, all of the world, all of the universe. Right? Uh, but maybe we could illustrate the difference this way. Imagine that uh, somebody from a very wealthy, affluent country wanted to go on a missions trip and they wanted to go help poor people, and they identified a community in India where people are living on a huge trash heap. And so they get on an airplane, and they fly there, and maybe they are a doctor, maybe they have uh, brought with them medical supplies or clothes or food, and they go to that slum community, and as an outsider and as a visitor, they show up and they enter that community, and they help people. They distribute food, they distribute clothes, they... they uh, provide medical care, they maybe treat sick people, and they're there for a few days, and then they leave. Okay? They came as an outsider, and they came as somebody who definitely doesn't belong there. And the people in the community would have never said, oh, they're one of us. Right? They would have said, they, they're an outsider who came and they helped us. But how different it is, and some people do this, they, they feel called to that kind of community, and they want to minister to those people. But instead of coming as an outsider... They sell all their possessions and they move there. <clears throat> and they actually get a home on, the, on top of the trash heap. And they go out with the people and they become one of them and like them. They become poor and they live like them. And they go out daily and they scrounge, um, scrounge through the trash heap to get food and, and, and stuff to live on. Right? And they become one of them. And in time they gradually become part of the community as one of them, as an insider, not an outsider. That's really the difference with what happened when Jesus was born with the Incarnation. Uh, before God was a visitor who came from outside of creation as one who existed way beyond the limits of this universe. And he come in and he visits, but he visits as an outsider. Uh, he happens to be the landlord as well. Right? So it's not that he doesn't belong here, but he's not one of us. But when Jesus was born, the difference was this, that he became one of us. That God entered our world uniquely, not as a visitor, but as a resident who lived with us and lived in the same way that we lived. And he subjected himself to the same limitations as, as we have as, as human beings. So that's what we mean by the incarnation, that he was with us, not that he was never with us before, but he's with us in a unique way as one of us, 
who entered our world and became part of it, right? And, and so that is that is uh, miraculous because if 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 a miracle is God intervening, God coming from outside to, to mess with the world, that's Jesus, right? Jesus came from outside from heaven to earth to mess with the world and to to bring God and God's love and His saving plan. Um, uh, so, so it really is a miracle, and it really is, um, in essence, w- w- what the incarnation is. So, so it's like, okay, that's all well and good, and um, sounds great. Um, let's 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 get back to those angels, right? <laughs> well, before we get to the angels, uh, here here's some of the problems with it, right? To really understand the miracle of what God did by coming in the person of Jesus, we really need to understand some some of the problems that are. Um, presented with with this venture, right? And really to understand it, what we what we need to do. There's a lot of things. We, and, and again, this is an ocean. This is a very deep ocean. We're not going to go all the way to the bottom. I just want to go under a little bit. Uh, and people who think about this a lot have written whole entire books that would just kill us all off. I'm not going to go there to all the does. But here's some of the problems, right? The problem is that God's nature, what it is that makes God God, who He is. And, and our nature as human beings, what it is that makes us human, our nature and characteristic and makeup, are extremely different, right? Um, and one of the problems in understanding this is that we tend to think of God like us. We think, well, God must not be all that different from us when we think about him because we have to use the things that we know when we think of, about him. But the reality is God is vastly different from us, vastly different, um, so, so we need to think a little bit about um, uh, God's nature, right? Uh, God is, first of all, pure spirit being. We are, on the other hand, spirit being, but we are also physical being. We live in bodies. And these bodies, if you haven't noticed, have certain limitations, right? And one of them is we can only be in one place and at one time which is really frustrating for me because there's a lot of times when I would like to be in three places at once. Just imagine the possibilities. Or I would even take two places at once. Like here at church and at breakfast buffet all at the same time, right? That that would be good, right? Um, God, on the other hand, is spirit being. He's never limited to to time or space like we are. That's what it means that God, as spirit, can be anywhere and everywhere all at once. In fact, he is anywhere, everywhere, all simultaneously, always. Right? He, he's not limited to and confined to space. He's not limited to time. So you and I live in a certain moment, and those moments tick off in, in chronological order. And so right now we're, we're right here in this moment in time. Uh, and we've come some distance to get here in time, and we will continue on in time. But God as Spirit is not limited to time. He is the beginning and the end and the middle all simultaneously. And uh, I, can't even, I can't even grasp that, right? How can God be in all times at once? But he can, right? He, he's, he exists outside of the confines of time. That's his nature. Um, our body is dependent on many things for survival. We need food and water and sleep and a lot of other things uh, to be healthy and happy. Uh, God is spirit. He was without body. He doesn't need sleep or food or rest or actually anything. And one of the things the Bible teaches that is he has everything he needs in himself. Right? He has everything that he needs. He doesn't need to go to 7-Eleven right? uh, or to Lotus or anything else. Right? Uh, because he has everything he need, needs within himself. 
So you see, in many ways, God is, is just so different from us. His nature is so different. Our brains can only hold so much information. And as I get older, all that information is leaking out, and I can't remember anything, right? I can't remember anything. Thankfully, we have Google, so I don't need to remember anything. But God knows everything. Uh, there's no limit to his brain power, what he can know. So here's the problem. Um, how, does, how, does, how does infinite spirit being that can be everywhere always and in all times unite himself with a nature that has a body that's limited in time and space, limited in brain power, in fact, limited in power in general. God, it says, spoke the universe into being. I can't even speak my socks on in the morning, right? That's why I don't wear them. Actually, I don't wear them because I live in Thailand, but that's another story. Right? I can't speak anything into existence. Um, and in fact, I have a hard time even ordering people around, right? They, they tend not to listen to me. Uh, go get me some donut. See, nobody moved, right? See, I have no power. God has power, right? So how did, how did this happen, that this infinite power, infinite, limited, limitless being could be united, could take on a human body? Well, I wish I could answer that. Sadly, I can't. Um, but let me, let me just say a couple things we know about how it's possible or what it means Right? How is it that Jesus could take on human flesh and blood? Well, first of all, uh, God did create the world, and he created it with a purpose and a plan. And so somehow we know that when he created the world and he created us, he created it in a way that made the incarnation possible. God saw this coming, and he planned for it. And so he created human beings, it says, in his image. And so there's some way, there's something compatible that makes it possible for God to take on human flesh uh, and incarnate in a way that he couldn't have done with a zebra or a giraffe, right? Uh, he could do it with a human because of the way he created us. Second, uh, it's possible because God is a triune being. Um, God is a trinity, which means another complicated ocean of miracles we don't have time to go into, but it means God is one being, one God, who exists in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible tells us that it is the Son who came to earth, right? Not all of God, but the person of the Son, uh, uniquely left heaven, uniquely came to earth and took on human flesh. So uh, God the Father was still in heaven, still in the spirit realm. Well, Jesus the Son, also God, took on human flesh. Um, I can't explain that, but it makes, uh, it makes the, the incarnation possible uh, because God's triune. Lastly, uh, the, the other thing we need to know is that uh, Jesus is unique as a human being in that he uh, has two natures. Right? Uh, when, when Jesus came and became a man, he did not uh, ditch who he was as God. In other words, this was a journey that did not have baggage allowance. Okay, do you guys like baggage allowance? I hate baggage allowance. Baggage allowance means that when you fly, you can't take anything but like your toothbrush and two pairs of clothes anymore, right? Or you have to pay a lot of extra money. You have to ditch most of what you would like to take with you. You have to leave it at home. And you have to travel with just a small bag of stuff. But there was no baggage allowance in the, in the incarnation. Jesus didn't have to leave behind or get rid of or ditch anything that he was as God. So the Bible tells us that he was 
in his, in his being as a, as a person, fully God and fully man. It means he was 100% God in every way. Now, it's clear that some of those attributes, some of those qualities, he chose not to use. He, he temporarily uh, set them aside, but he did not abandon them. Right? And this is all important. We'll see in a minute why. It's important because that's the miracle of incarnation. Right? Jesus is fully God, but also fully human. He had a body just like ours, and he lived a life exactly like ours. He was born like us. He ate food like us. He was in time just like us. Right? Now at this point, we start sinking down in that ocean, and we start getting kind of mired in all of these questions. And like right now is the time when we all want to say, let's get back to those angels, right? Let's get back to the shepherds, because I can get that one. Hallelujah. Let's sing that hallelujah chorus, right? And it's tempting to abandon this pursuit of the incarnation and go to something small enough we can wrap our minds around. Um, But I don't want to do that this morning. And the reason is that uh, understanding the incarnation is essential to really know who Jesus is. And, And that truth is vital for us because in it, the Bible says, is salvation. We are saved because of who Jesus is was and is. And he was not just a normal, everyday human being, nor was he just an extraordinary, special, specially gifted human being. Right? The, 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 the incarnation means that he was fully human, fully man, but also in every way, fully divine, fully God. And that God stepped out of heaven and came to earth and entered it as one of us, for a purpose and a reason. Um, to help us, uh, you know, if it were get in the submarine and go into this a little deeper, I want to look at another passage in Colossians real briefly. And I could, I could, I could go on and on from the Colossians. I'm not going to, though. I'm going to just summarize uh, briefly. But it, it gives a great picture of, of what it meant for Jesus to be both God and man. And it does it not so much by explaining how it was possible or how these two natures could exist together, but it does it by explaining what exactly it was Jesus did as God and what he did as man. So if you have a Bible, maybe up here, uh, we can look at uh, Colossians chapter uh, 1, verse 15. Uh, Sorry, it says, "He He is, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and in, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what this tells us is that what Jesus did as God is, first of all, he existed forever. Right? He is what we, we say he is pre-existent. In other words, before Jesus was born, before that, he was the Son of God who existed throughout all eternity uh, as the creator of heaven and earth. Um, and if we can go on to the, the next slide, uh, what it meant for him to be fully God is this. He was, um, first of all, in the, the image of the invisible God. Right? So he came and he came in human flesh to show us uh, what God looks like. And that doesn't mean like what his face was like or like how tall he was <laughs> or how much he weighed. Um, but it means that what, what was God like? What would it be like if God lived on earth 
and love people with God's love in a human body. That's what it means. And that's what Jesus did. So he's the image of the invisible God. Secondly, uh, he's the firstborn of creation. Right, now, this, this word firstborn can be a bit deceiving and can throw us off because when we think of a firstborn, it means somebody who was actually born. But in Hebrew culture, uh, the word uh, took on special meaning because of a firstborn. And in, in, in Jewish culture, the firstborn was a big deal. They, they inherited uh, all the estate or uh, much of the estate. Uh, and they were, they were seen to be supreme over all other children. And of course, all of us who are firstborns can affirm this, right? Firstborns are just supreme. We just are naturally better than everybody else. All the others are going, boo, boo. Don't throw things at me. Uh, no, it's not true, not true. But in, in, in many respects in, in Israeli culture, they were kind of seen that way. They were in a special role, in a special status as the firstborn. Uh, and what happened is that word uh, had such meaning and power and impact that it was often used beyond just what it meant to be a firstborn child or firstborn son. And it was used to really mean something that was supreme, that was above and beyond everything else. Uh, we do this in English with words. Uh, we take words that have a very literal meaning, but we like the idea of the word, so we apply it to other things. So, for example, back, I don't think we use this any word anymore this way, but way back a long time ago, a bomb... We all know what a bomb is, right? A bomb is an explosive device, oftentimes a large explosive device that's dropped maybe out of an airplane and explodes and wreaks great havoc, right? It's explosive. It, it, it rocks the world. But there was a time when in a pop American culture, uh, they took that word and the idea of that word, something that was large and explosive, and they would, they would talk about things being the bomb, right? So you could tell your girlfriend, you are the bomb, and it didn't mean you weighed a thousand pounds and could destroy things, right? Because if it did, that would like get you in a lot of trouble. It meant like, no, like you rock my world, right? And, and there's another word, like the word rock. Where does that come from? Does I, when I say you rock my world, does that mean you turn everything in my world into stone? Well, no, no, we don't mean that. We mean like, I don't know what we, what do we mean by that? Like, I don't know, you rock it. You, you, you rock it. Yeah, rock and roll. I don't know. Um, so we do that with words, right? We take their literal meaning and then we extend it, the idea of it, and apply it to other things. Well, that's what it means here by firstborn. Jesus wasn't the firstborn because he was the first child of God that God uh, gave birth to. It means, no, he's supreme over all of creation. And in fact, the passage goes on and makes that very clear. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, everything. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones are dominions, rulers, authorities, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, not only this universe, Jesus created this universe, but whatever other universes there are out there, whatever heavens or realms or places, whatever, whatever there is that's created, whatever there is out there that's not God, came into being because Jesus created it. Right? That's who Jesus was before he came incarnate in, in, in the Son right, to Mary. He was the pre-existent creator of everything. Everything. So there was a time when there was nothing anywhere ever except just God. Existing in, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, God came up, God the Father, it says he willed it. He's the one who maybe, you could say, in a sense, came up with the idea 
And Jesus was the one who got to work and, and created. Right? Um, so it says that he's the image of the uh, image of the invisible God who came in the flesh. It says that he is, um, later on we'll see, it says in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of this creator God was pleased to dwell in this body of this person called Jesus. Right? That's what it means to be fully God. Uh, uh, firstborn of creation. Thirdly, everything exists in him. Okay, Everything was created by him, but it goes on to say, and he is before all things, before all things, and in him all things hold together. don't have a lot of time to go into that, but uh, it used to be for a couple hundred years, scientists believed that the universe was a self-contained system that did not need any outside help, that it didn't need to be recharged, it did not need, ever need new batteries, and it didn't need any outside God holding it together. And so for a long time, people conceded, well, maybe God created the universe, but... He, you know, he wound it up and it's just going on its own. It doesn't need his help. But recently, science is becoming to discover that's not true. And they can't explain it. And many scientists don't want to credit it to God. But the truth is, the world is not running on its own. It is not a closed system. And dark matter and subatomic particles and a lot of things are starting to leave questions that scientists can't answer. And the Bible says that it's Jesus who's holding it all together, who's sustaining it who's not only created it, but who's keeping it actively running. Um, So that's what it means to be fully God. Um, But he's also fully man, 100% man. And it goes on to say this, and, and, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent, supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. Okay, um, these things are kind of put in parallel. If we go to the next slide, uh, as God, he's the image of the invisible God. As man, he's the head of the church. What is the church? It's not a building, it's not a structure. It is the redeemed people of God. It's you and I. In order to be head of the church, he has to be one of us. He has to be human like us. And so it identifies him as man. Secondly, it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Okay, now here's a place where we know the word firstborn doesn't mean born because um, dead people aren't born. They're, they're mostly dead, right? But it means he's the first. He, he blazed the trail. He was the first one to be raised to new life. And that uh, raises a whole other series of questions. How did he die? Well, he died, and it was possible for him to die only because he had a human nature. Right? Only as a human could he die. God can't die. Only as he took on human flesh was he even able to die so that he could be the firstborn from the dead. And finally, uh, most importantly, it says that... Um, He's the fullness of God. Through him, he reconciles all things to himself, whether on heaven or earth, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, why, does, why is it that the uh, incarnation matters? Why is it we need to plunge into this very mysterious ocean that's hard to wrap our minds around? Well, it is because it is only by the incarnation 
that it is possible for us to have peace with God. Uh, the, the fact is that we all, as human beings, have uh, made God angry because we've sinned against him. In fact, he talks about that in verse 21. He says in verse 21, And you who were once alienated, that is, far away from God, and hostile in mind, doing evil, he is now reconciled. He talks about three things. One, we were alienated. We were far away from God. We were not near him. And, and secondly, he says we were hostile in mind. It means we didn't want to be near him. And many people may say, well, I don't remember ever feeling hostile to God. And many people who are not worshipers of God will tell you, we're not hostile at God. We're not angry. But what, me, what they mean by that is that the God they've created in their own mind, they like. But if they were to stand before the true and living God, who has certain demands and expectations, who is holy, who is, who is not like us, and who seeks to be Lord over our life and to mess with our life, <laughs> we don't like that. Right? When God starts messing with us, what do we do? We tell him, God, get away from me. Right? I don't want to follow you. And so the truth is, we were, before we came to Christ, hostile in our mind and our attitude against God. And finally, we were doing evil deeds. We did things that we knew were wrong and that God knows are wrong. Um, And the Bible says that the penalty, the cost of that is death, that we fall under God's wrath or anger. Some of us have problems with this concept of God being angry because for us, angry is always selfish and usually petty, right? Like when our friends get mad at us, it's always petty. It's only when we're angry that it's a just cause, right? Um, but God is not like us. And his anger is always based on his goodness, his righteousness, and his love. And, and, and there's a cost for it, right? Uh, the cost, it says, of his wrath, his anger, is that we must pay for our crimes with our own life. And for many, this is like where people throw up their hands and say, well, if that's what God is like, I don't want to know a God like that. Tell me that's not being hostile in mind, by the way. Uh, I don't want a God who's, who's so angry, right? What happened to the God of love? Well, that would be true if the story ended here, but the incarnation cancels all of that, right? Because Here's what, Jesus, what God did. God said, yes, I am angry at sin and there is a price to be paid for sin and it's death. It is your blood and mine. It is your life and mine. But God said, here's, here, here's the deal. Because of my great love for you, I am going to come down and I am going to take on a body like yours. And I am going to take on myself the penalty of sin. And I am going to become sin. And I am going to pay the price by dying on the cross and letting my own blood pour out. And I am going to take the punishment for your hatred and for the things that have caused you to be so distant from me in relationship. And so it says, through, through Jesus, he reconciled us to himself. He restored that deeply broken relationship through the gift of his own son. And Jesus' life could do that, had the power to do that only for two reasons. One, because he was fully God, perfect in every way. And because he was fully man, able to die and subject to death. That he could 
allow his body to be nailed to the cross for us. Um, So he says that's what he's done. In the past we were alienated, but now, verse 22, now he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's what made it possible. And that's why the incarnation really is the greatest miracle of the Bible. Um, His resurrection is a huge miracle. But his resurrection would not have been possible if it wasn't first for the incarnation. And that's what Christmas is, right? Ultimately, we are, what we are celebrating is not just that, that a, a baby was born to a virgin and that she laid him in a, a stall and the sheep were standing around and the shepherds came to visit and the wise men. Those are great things. But ultimately, what we celebrate is that God brought his salvation to us by taking on himself a human nature and a human body so that he could die for us. Right? And lastly, it says that not only has he done this, but, but, but he does this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we now are presented by Jesus. Jesus leads us by the hand and he presents us to his Father. And we stand before his Father blameless, without reproach. That means that nobody can ever accuse us of any wrong because our sins are wiped out, every one of them, at every level, in every area and part of life. We stand before God holy, clean, pure, blameless. And not only my past sins, but my present sins and my future sins. All my sins, all my mistakes, all my failures are washed clean by the blood of Christ. Um, And it's his work, right? There's nothing you and I need to do to earn it. We don't have to get our life together first and get cleaned up first and then accept what Jesus has done for us. In fact, we can't, right? It's something he does for us. But there is one thing required of us. There is one thing we must do. Uh, It's not crawl up on a mountain on your hands and knees, right? It's not do at least ten good things, right? It is this. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. In other words, the message, the message I just told you, the message that we have made God angry by our sin, but God in his love sent Jesus to die for us. That's the gospel message. All we have to do is just believe it's true. Personally and actively put our faith in Jesus as the only means of salvation. And hold on to that and not some other message, some other gospel that we get saved by being good or doing good stuff or by somehow... Uh, some penance that pays for our sin, that we trust in Jesus alone. Right? Um, let's, let's bow our heads. And as we bow our heads, um, Christmas is an awesome time to celebrate uh, the gift of salvation. Um, and for those of us who know Jesus, we can, we can celebrate it with great joy. But if, uh, if you've never come to Christ and you don't know who he is, He offers to every single human being his grace, his gift in Jesus. 
And that's the, the great gift of Christmas. And I just invite you this morning to, uh, to just believe it's true. The one part that we must play to receive his gift of salvation. Just to say, yes, I believe that Jesus came, that he was eternal God, that somehow, through a miracle, he became a man, and he lived a very human, normal life, and he died on a cross for me. And I believe that that sacrifice was enough to take away my sins and give me a reconciled relationship with God. That is the gospel we are called to proclaim. And I invite you to accept that gift by faith this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your love for us. And Lord, uh, I feel so inadequate to explain the incarnation and it seems like this ocean with, with depths far beyond what we can comprehend. But um, it's how we understand who Jesus really is. And Lord, I pray that we would have an ever-growing faith in who Jesus is, not just as a good person or a great teacher, but as, as God incarnate. God come to this earth as one of us to die and give his life for us. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.